I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a podcast on everything from employment to aircraft carriers. We are a bunch of policy nerds based in Lumber Bengaluru, and we like bringing fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and Indian perspectives to global affairs. I'm Yazad, an economist, and I'm Shambhavi, a cell biologist. The research folk at Takshashila do read a lot of interesting papers, and we thought, why not talk about some of them as a regular feature? So, talking about interesting papers today with me are Pranay and Aditya. Pranay, so why do men become terrorists? I should correct you. That's not the title of the paper. Okay, it is who becomes a terrorist. Isn't that the conclusion do... of the paper? No. That's the title of the paper, not men. Be- <laughs> why do men become terrorists? Okay, but nevertheless, so this is an interesting paper I read uh, a few years back, and the paper is from twenty eleven, and uh, the title is "Who Becomes a Terrorist?" Question mark Poverty, Education, and the Origins of Political Violence. So that was an interesting theme, right? The who becomes, why do people become terrorists is an interesting question to answer. So I started reading it. The main insight from the paper was generally people believe that poverty and lack of education prepares the ground for someone to become a terrorist, right? So this paper says no, that's mm-hmm. not the case. Uh, that uh, generally terrorists actually in short are lower status individuals from the educated and politicized section of a population. So that's the insight. It's not the poorest people who become terrorists. It is the lower status individuals from an educated and politicized section of the population. What is lower status? Is that a social, yeah. economic? So, it includes both. They What he says is lower status can be the poorer half of this uh, well-networked section of the society or also could be the people who have less education. So, the author of the paper is Alexander Lee, a political scientist based out of the US. So, let me now explain what the sort of, this is the main inside of the paper, right? Uh, But what is the sort of the details about it? Now, what he says is people become, people becoming terrorists, you can imagine it as a framework. In that framework, people with the lowest incomes don't become terrorists for the simple reason that they do not have access, A, to the networks that you require to be politically involved, and B, uh, because uh, the cost for getting involved in terrorism are too high for them, okay, and they are basically... Uh, they, it, terrorism is a drain on their time, right? And they would be busy uh, getting economic access, uh, get getting access for basic necessities, right? So they are not the people who will actually engage in terrorism. So that's a cost to becoming a terrorist and these people might not be able to afford that. Yes, cost. yeah. So uh, in terms of time, actually, yeah. the cost is in terms of time. You, you want to use that time to do something better and probably uh, earn money and make their lives better. So that's the one section. So then there is, a, so if you look at a graph where you draw income on the x-axis and ter- people becoming terrorists on the y-axis, below a certain threshold of income, this sort of graph is almost near zero. Okay, so this is a theoretic model in the sense it is not empirically backed. The paper just wait, 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 wait. proposes uh, it. What hmm. is it a definition for a terrorist? I mean, there are also petty criminals, hmm. and then there is terrorists. So yes. is there a, a demarcation? Yeah, line good and... point. So here, terrorism is, means very specific thing, right? Terrorism means people who are getting uh, involved in violence or the threat of violence for a political purpose. Okay. So we define terrorism in our definition. It is the 
use of violence or the threat of use of violence for uh, indiscriminate purposes and for political purpose right so it falls under that so it does not take into account criminals mm-hmm. or so for example there might be higher crime in the lowest uh, income yeah. uh, society strata we don't know uh, from this paper about that because maybe to get access to uh, a lot of basic necessities and if the state is not providing if the market is not providing people might turn to crime that is not what the paper talks about so we are specifically talking about political violence okay so that so now so there's one threshold below which there are no terrorists and after that there's suddenly an inflection point where the amount of te- uh, number of terrorists uh, rise at a certain income threshold and after that again that level starts falling okay so what explains this so again what uh, this paper says is that beyond a certain threshold opportunity costs decide who becomes terrorist and uh, who doesn't become terrorist so in general political participation is very high once you have a certain level of education and income okay so but if within this group of people who engage in polit- who are active politically there is one section of the people who are who will be sort of the higher educated or the people with the higher status in society they will engage in non violent political activities because again the opportunity cost for them to engage in violence and probably get arrested are too high mm-hmm. so they will be very politically active but they will probably take protests they will make uh, they, they'll write letters to uh, people like form their own political parties etc but so they won't engage in that yeah reputation opportunity cost yeah. right what if you get if you are put into jail mm. what happens to your business what mm. happens to your standing in society yeah. that kind of thing so that is the section which engages in uh, non violent political acts but the people who are on the lower side of this education or income strata within this section are the people for whom the opportunity costs are not so high and they are not the most they are not the people who can influence uh, a, a lot of uh, other sections of the society through their writing or probably they don't have so much money to spend to uh, or to organize a political rally etc so terrorism becomes a, a good vehicle for that section to to get their political voices heard and does that increase their social status yes yes it will yeah. okay so that's how it uh, this paper talks about so interestingly a counterintuitive insight for us would be when a society when a country becomes richer okay if you look at this graph which is uh, near zero the amount of terrorists is zero until an income threshold then it suddenly rises and then tries to fall back again uh, if you look at it as the country becomes richer this will actually shift leftwards that is at a uh, more people are uh, more people might become terrorists in the beginning but then as you have uh, the society becoming richer they will engage more into political uh, uh, acts but non violent political acts but this will also depend on uh, social economic equality right or equity right mm. in the society so not just the society getting richer but everybody in the society getting richer Yeah so here we are talking about it's averaged out right mm-hmm. so yeah. we are talking about the mean levels of uh, terrorism so uh, when we are talking about society becoming rich we are talking mm-hmm. about generally uh, most of, most the, of the this is day. widespread we are not talking yeah. about one section so this is this paper i found interesting right because i was always confused about what is the relation between poverty and 
terrorism and lot of times you read in articles etc and in fact that has been the reason why people also argue for foreign aid because they think poverty leads directly to terrorism so give foreign aid to a country and terrorism might decline this papers is no right it might yeah. ex- in the short run actually it might increase the number of people becoming terrorists in the long run it might decline but at least this is a good uh, way to understand so this is the main insight of the paper the paper actually takes uh, the data for the paper is from uh, anti colonial movement in bengal mm-hmm. and at that time the, he uses the word terrorist to define uh, again political acts which are violent right uh, and that the word you terrorism now has completely yeah. uh, colored yeah. dimensions right we see it in a very uh, one dimensional way but it is actually a, using a violence for political means so if that definition is applied and uh, he tries to do, uh, do a regression a standard regression and uh, it, it it's a very robust data set so this uh, um, uh, this uh, hypothesis actually uh, plays true in the data but with the political motivation of someone in the colonial times and someone acting now be similar uh it doesn't matter because this if you t- think of terrorism as an instrument mm-hmm. okay an instrument of uh, getting of political means right so it doesn't matter the uh, it might be something else it uh, the in colonial times the object was different but the instrument can still be used for different objectives true Uh, what's uh, striking to me is that if this is dependent on your socio economic status mm. it means ideology is not by far the sole driver yes, of whether you Yes exactly become. so that's the second explanation right people say always ideology might be a motivating factor even that is uh, at least we can say that to some extent other factors play a role and yeah. not ideology alone so this book uh, ba- basically this paper also uh, is based on a book uh, as in it sort of uh, um, uh, reestablishes what another famous book says it was by an economist at princeton called alan uh, kruger his book called what makes a terrorist also sort of uh, says the same thing that it is opportunity cost it is socio economic conditions which can play a role in people becoming terrorists and not just uh, poverty and uh, ideology so there is an opportunity cost to right. becoming a terrorist mm. right but if i have very strong motivation uh, and that motivation is grounded is something uh, which could have a religious background it could be that i'm fighting mm. for my motherland mm. would my automatic perception of that opportunity cost be lower uh, i i i think that so look at it as that is one common factor which might play a role okay ideology Uh, one thing i could say is when people are more educated they are more likely to be exposed to an ideology of one kind or the other right they can probably read the documents which uh, try to propagate a view etc so that is a uh, one factor uh, but this paper is purely looking at let other things being constant what would be the role of uh, socio economic status awesome. here awesome so now coming to aditya Uh, you wanted to talk about uh, the nuclear threat uh, and the threat of proliferation to uh, non-state actors. Yeah, it's actually very specific. It's uh, it's a paper called uh, "Why States Won't Give Nuclear Weapons to Terrorists," and it's by uh, it's by Daryl Press and Kyle Lieber. Press and Lieber are actually well known for making these provocative arguments about why America should develop counter-force capabilities and also, but they actually wrote this paper in two thousand thirteen. 
where they argued that it was very unlikely that uh, states would surreptitiously pass over nuclear weapons to terrorists. And the, the main reason they give for this is very simple. It's attribution. It is that uh, state-backed terrorism is actually fairly easily e attributable. So you know who the actual perpetrator is. Mm. And uh, now we don't have any instances of uh, nuclear terrorism. So they use a data set of uh, conventional terror acts from 98 to, to 2008. They also use smaller data sets of terrorist acts in uh, in the US and its allies. And they find that in the, in the large data set uh, of about 18,000 terrorist acts, uh, attribution occurs about 40% of the time. And in the smaller data sets involving the US and its allies, uh, if you looked at uh, terrorist acts that killed 10 or more people uh, over 10 years, attribution was 97%. Mm. So what they're saying is you're going to find the perpetrators. Now, one obvious counter-argument to this is that when, say, a conventional terrorist attack occurs, or some, somebody sets off a bomb, there are ways of investigating. You know, you can find, you can trace the explosive, you can trace the vehicle, you, you have eyewitnesses, you have CCTV cameras, or none of those things might exist when a nuclear explosion occurs. Uh, but they argue that the other types of evidence that are left behind when a major terrorist attack is planned, uh, you know, cell phone intercepts, uh, uh, human sources, and so on, will uh, will help you identify uh, who the perpetrators are. Secondly, when such big terrorist attacks occur, states devote a lot more resources. Naturally, if there's a nuclear terrorist attack, states are going to devote all their resources to it, not just because they want to find the perpetrators, but because they want to make sure no follow-up attacks take place. Other states are likely to cooperate with them. Hmm. And so the idea that you can carry out an attack like this and remain anonymous, hmm. is it's, it's very unlikely. Uh, they also point out that uh, a state is uh, would, will not very easily give up its nuclear weapons to a non-state actor, which might have its own motivations. And even if this non-state actor were, let's say this non-state actor were really just proxies completely under your control, your relationship with those that non-state actor would be well known to other states anyway. So these are broadly the reasons they give for why... Uh, it's unlikely that a, a nuclear weapon state will simply hand over a nuclear weapon to terrorists and say, go do your thing. Yeah, so it's, for example, Pakistan is the classic case. Yeah, in fact, Pakistan is the only country that has both nuclear weapons and supports yeah. terrorists at the moment. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. So in that sense, if you see, uh, again, because Pakistan always has this uh, position, right, that you need us or the military jihadi complex always has this position that the world needs us because we can prevent terrorism uh, becoming nuclear. Right? Yeah. So if you see this th uh, this insight, then it's not even in their interest to have uh, nuclear terrorists going around. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's very much against their own interests. Uh, it's also extremely risky. Uh, the idea that you can do this and sort of escape retaliation mm. or the possibility of retaliation mm. is is very tenuous. I, and uh, you would have this if even if a country were to do this, it would be under very extreme circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the other, you know, sometimes countries might choose some sort of deniability. They may say it's lose lose nukes. I, I'm sorry, I just lost control of mm -hmm. my nuclear weapons. Right. Uh, but even over there, it's 
it's unlikely that other countries are going to be so forgiving. Correct. correct. Yeah. So the consequences for the state is going to be the same whether it feigns ignorance or it says, you know, we were overhead, overwhelmed by yeah. terrorists. So, I think it would be largely the same. Yeah. You can have some degree of ambiguity, but yeah, it's a, it's an extra, extraordinarily risky strategy for any state. So I know in the with the biological weapons, there was the same fear that states might actually leak some of the technology to non-state actors, and that actually drove a lot of the program to destroy arsenals that were held, withheld by countries. Mm-hmm. And most countries then closed down their biological weapons program. But I want to ask you: Isn't that more likely? Isn't it easier for a state to hand over biological weapons to a non-state actor? I mean, these are Evidence is easier to hide. They're easier to smuggle. They would. They're. They're like. They're easier to do. But I think the because there is no control over how it can over over the biological weapon itself. Uh, a small accident in the laboratory can destroy your own forces. Right. right. Uh. So and we are not there yet with like taking biological weapons and sending them across the border to to other regions. So I think that's what has detained a lot. But the the severity of a biological weapon is so high that it actually drove people, drove states to destroy their own programs. Yeah. So, which obviously we haven't seen with the nuclear. Yeah. So, I think risk, the argument of risk remains the same. Yes. And I would also say if it is a weapon of mass destruction, again, it implies that implication, other states will not, are not going to buy the thing that, you know, this happened somehow we were not responsible yeah. they will be more severe so that still holds absolutely yeah also when it comes to nuclear weapons if non-state actors do ever get the the expertise or the infrastructure would it be easy to uh, understand that before they actually launch a weapon i mean when you're developing the capability of yeah so if, if you're this paper doesn't go into uh, non-state actors building their own nuclear weapons. There are separate debates about that. Uh, that you know, typically they would need highly enriched uranium. There's a lot of it. There's I think 1.3 million kilograms in the world. So in stockpiles. So you would have to steal some of that. You would have to build the device. You'd have to build a very crude device. So there are all those hurdles. It's not as simple as it might seem. It's not as simple as building a conventional bomb. And there are a lot of global treaties around, right? Uh, that govern nuclear uh, weapon technology. Yeah, there are protocols for securing uh, stockpiles. Yeah. Right. So, if uh, a state claims that some non-state actors did come over and hijack their, their nuclear capabilities, uh, is there anything in the regulations about how the global community would react to this? No, I don't, I don't think you need regulations. Everybody's going to come down on, on it like a ton of bricks. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Aditya. Uh, Pranay, you wanted to talk about... Yeah, this week there was Ambedkar Jayanti and uh, one of the things that I always like to talk about is just to discuss Ambedkar's thoughts, right? I think the best way to give tribute to a person like Ambedkar is not to, uh, you know, venerate him and put him on a pedestal, but to actually discuss what he's written. And uh, one of the interesting things, like Ambedkar has written on like virtually everything, right? From agriculture, economics, uh, his first PhD was in that, uh, to constitution and, uh, of course, annihilation of caste, etc. But uh, on, on Pakistan as well. But he one thing that I wanted to discuss today is his, his view on linguistic mm-hmm. states. Now, again, 
just like in all other essays ambedkar says something which pisses off everyone okay so he has this uh, amazing habit of giving absolutely logical arguments and it will turn off a lot of people uh, <laughs> so I, i like that you know very provocative paper so the book is called thoughts on linguistic states it is a, it's not a book it's an essay sort, sort of and it's compiled in a book uh, which me has put it on their website for free for anyone to access so if you guys get the time please go and read the entire thing i might be uh summarizing it incorrectly or not summarizing it in all its complexity okay so uh, anyway so the main insight of this paper is ambedkar supports the idea of linguistic states that's not controversial but he says uh, an interesting thing he says that one language one state shouldn't be a categorical imperative but one state one language should be possible now let me deconstruct it right what does it mean so he says uh, that first it is okay to have a linguistic homogeneity it is it will make democracy work better and he gives reasons as to why we can go and go back and read them uh, and he also says that in a heterogeneously organized society uh, for governance especially power is used for the benefit of one group and to the detriment of others so it is okay to have a more homogeneous unit uh, and that's why his support for linguistic provinces but he says one important thing he says this that a linguistic province has got nothing to do with the language of the province but only as a socially homogeneous group so he says the official language of that linguistic province should still be the same as that of the uh, union government okay so he says if it is english it is english and he even says at some point of time it should become hindi okay that's a strange that's again a controversial thing but he says that you are using this idea of homogeneity to start to form uh, to govern better to form a largely homogeneous group which have their interests being represented well but you don't need to have the state the, gov- uh, the governing mechanism also to adopt one particular language that's that is not required he says right so you only use this as a means to decide what your borders are what your where till where your governance will reach but you don't need to make this a necessary precondition uh, for your building your identity around it okay so that's interesting uh, one from the government side right so uh, then next thing what i said about the categorical imperative of one language one state is not required so he says it's okay to have once uh, many language people of many languages forming many states like people of one language forming, forming many, many states. states so for example he foresaw in a sense what happens in andhra pradesh and telangana right so we have two states which have telugu as uh, the most important language and is so even in north india it's similar right yeah. like hindi speaking states are divided into multiple parts so that's what the uh, paper says so a very interesting insight and never thought about one state one language versus one language one state so yeah. yeah i would request everyone to go and read it it's a fun read it sounds great but uh, i just want to ask you how does he envisage a state government operating in a language different from the people they are serving uh yeah so he says it it does it shouldn't matter uh, eventually so in the paper he talks about that it is probably not good to have this subnational identities growing a lot more from the governance side he says the society can have its language but the government should uh, so uh, it's not in a sense that uh, 
the states mechanism can have english and the other language yeah. which is most popular in it which was the case before uh, linguistic states anyways right so sure. it's uh, so it's not that you deny a particular language but the state needn't adopt and champion the cause of just one language right? so that's the idea so apparently a lot of our uh, a lot of our disturbances that have happened over the past well, since independence have mm. usually happened over the border areas right where people speak two languages mm. but people of two languages reside together does he talk about how that could be resolved uh no no he doesn't talk about that in this paper but i think broadly if you have uh, many states with the same language you can diffuse the sort yeah, of subnationalism yeah. so you wouldn't have like a st- one state cannot argue that i am the sole so preserve of a particular language or i am the custodian of a particular language. it will be more diffuse that's yeah. the idea yeah that makes a lot of sense but there are so many parameters right indians are different in so many i mean languages is just one part any idea why he picked language yeah so actually the... the paper talks about that and he says language is uh, essential because so he, he sort of says there is some weight to the idea that language is an important means of identity expression so it does homogenize as a homogenizing factor it is more powerful than the others and also because it is uh, it is geographical as well right like yes, yeah. it they'll be concentrated in one region like you can take another factor as well let's say religion but then it is not geographically expressed right you could have people spread across which have, might have common religion so i think it's a combination of both the practicality of it and uh, the identity aspect of language thank you okay. thank you Aditya. do let us know if this thursday's thing works uh you you would like to listen to more of these papers yeah any other papers that you think that you are interested in do send it to us and we will try to discuss them on here yeah thank you all right thank you we would love to hear what you think about this chat check us out at our twitter handle at takshashila inst on our quora space all things policy for the latest analysis and research on technology strategy and economic affairs visit our website at takshashila.org.in and tune in for our next episode